It's my pleasure to welcome back Sidney Brenner for the third and final lecture in this series on biology out of the, uh, after the genome. I know that we all have enjoyed the wit and insight that Sydney has brought uh, to the topic, and I think we should all, before we start, thank him for being here to share with us his ideas and insight. So, Sydney, thank you. Thank you for braving the impending tornado, which I'm told is just barely outside here, to come to this lecture. Uh, this lecture is entitled The Architecture of Biological Complexity. And I looked for a word to describe this, that is the subject I'm going to talk about, and I originally called it a grammar. That is, because I said, I thought that there was a real structure to the biological system that it needed to have in order to generate what it intended to do. In other words, it wasn't enough to look at the words that the gene had, the genes said, but in fact, their organization as well. And someone criticized me for using the word grammar, and I thought architecture was a much better word. And I was delighted to discover that many of the great architects who produced great works of architecture actually didn't have their buildings ever built. I mean, Le Corbusier is one example. And so I'm afraid I will have to tell you that this is a uh, lecture on architecture and not a lecture on realization, because I think that is still to come. I also was very interested to discover that the word architecture had been used in this context in the design of computers, and that uh, there were three things to, that were important in complex computing system. One was the architecture of the computer. One was the implementation. And the other was the realization, which is sort of, you know, getting down to the basic thing and actually making a computer. So I will talk tonight more on design and modes of implementation rather in terms than in terms of realization because I think that's going to be an ongoing task uh, for at least the foreseeable future. Well, of course, now that we have all these sequences of all these genomes, uh, people would like to take this information and use it in, in, in a definitive way. 
And there are two issues about this, which I think it is worthwhile thinking about quite hard. Uh, and the issue is, can we create knowledge out of the bare sequences of genes? And the second thing that I think we have to confront very quickly before we, we commit ourselves too much to a structure, an organizational structure that is bound to be defeated is exactly how do we do this. And so what I'd like you to do is just to sit back and reflect on the following situation. We all live in a particular town or city, and we succeed. Uh, we survive in this town and city because we have a tremendous knowledge of how the thing works. So, for example, you sit down and you realize that uh, your neighbors, every morning people, people wake up in that house. The father goes off to work in a bank. The mother goes off to teach in a school. The children go off to do something else. And that all these households decompose, so to speak, every morning. And each of the components reassemble themselves in entities which effectively drive the city. So you need banks, you need supermarkets, you need schools, you need hospitals, you need all those things. And just to reflect on it, if you don't know about those reassemblies, those interactions, those productions, there's no way you can understand how a city in modern society uh, can, can work. Right. So, what I'd like you to reflect on this analogy, because I think it's more than just a plain analogy, I think it's quite a deep analogy, is the following. Suppose you were given the white pages of the telephone book of Princeton, which we can go and get. So there's a list of all the names and their addresses and their telephone numbers, and you can say, well, you know, that's a really charming list of people, wonderful people. But, I mean, what's it about? I mean, what, how can I take that list of the white pages and try to understand how Princeton works? So you realize immediately that without the knowledge of what we were talking about in a few minutes ago, this is meaningless, right? So then you said, well, we've got something that's even better. It's the yellow pages, right? And they give you the yellow pages and you read, yeah, there's six plumbers on this block. This is where you go to find the laundries and so on. That's a bit helpful, but it doesn't tell you, again, how Princeton works or New York works or any of the other things. So I think from that simple example, I hope you will see 
when I now draw the analogies as to what people are trying to do, why they must assuredly fail. So there is a thing of getting the human genome sequence. That's the white pages in the telephone book. It's no less, no more. Huh? There's a great lot of people there. You can get their addresses. You can do a lot of things. They now talk about annotation. They've got to sit down and they've got to annotate these genomes. What is the annotation? It's a classification. It's a naming. So it's the yellow pages of the genome. You know, we'll learn there are 54 plumbers or closely related to plumbers, members of the plumber superfamily, as they would say, and there are 18 carpenters, and there are a couple of hybrids that look a bit like carpenters, but they also look a bit like plumbers. So we have a classification. Still don't tell us how the city works. And this is the main objective of this. And that's why I feel we need another approach to this. We need to get what we know, in, we know from our own experience, which we haven't yet formulated. We, we haven't sat down to formulate how a city works. We need to have that knowledge embodied in whatever we design to say how a cell works. So I believe that annotation is a use, might be a useful thing, but I ain't going to tell you anything. And I don't care how much you annotate it, how much you say, well, there are attractive plumbers here and, you know, quite disgusting ones here. It isn't going to help us because we must understand the dynamics of the organization. Right. So how would we propose to go about it? And here I turn into the architect. And so I will describe for you a kind of gedanken plan about how we proceed. How can we take this knowledge and embed it in a system that we can actually use in a way to understand complexity. So this is the architecture of complexity. Well, so the first thing is everybody wants to know, let's just ask, what is the aim of doing this? So we'll take a very naive aim, which is uh, that we all want to be rich. What we'd like is to have a model of the human organism inside a computer so that when a pharmaceutical company comes to us and says, look, I've got this drug, it'll inhibit this process, what's going to happen? You know, will the guys grow horns? Will they do this? Will they do that? In other words, so then we can run the simulated organism or cell, as the case may be, and we can tell them the outcome without actually performing it and recording it. Right? And that is science, because science wants to predict unknown things, because describing everything is easy. We can do this. But what we want to do is to say, well, look, there's an unforeseen thing, and we want to predict 
what is the answer. For predict, read, compute in the language that I have been using. Right? So, of course, that says we want to build systems that can simulate behavior. And before I go in any further, I should say that I must draw a complete distinction between what I call sim simulation and what I call imitation. Okay? Because simulation has to be carried out in the machine language of the object being simulated. Okay? Otherwise, it's just a copy of the behavior. Let me give you an example, because this is the way you can do, if you like, this is the Brenner test as opposed to the Turing test. Right? So the Brenner test says the following. Someone says, look, I've got this wonderful thing, and I can show you how little worms crawl around on a screen. Such so a student of mine drew this one day. See? So I said, give me your program to read. So I read his program, and all it was, it was full of sine theta, cos theta. Okay, he was just generating sine waves. He was coloring them in as worms. And I said, this is not a simulation. This is an imitation of how worms do it. Because if it were a simulation, I'd expect to find neurons, synapses, muscles, the machine language of the object being simulated. So therefore, we can say we're not interested in that. And indeed, if you look at this whole argument that people have put up, I mean, you know, Searle has put up about the... By the way, I met him in a bookshop this afternoon, John Searle, you know, about the Chinese room and so on. All you're testing there is whether this machine can actually pretend to be a Chinese can be an imitation. Because unless you can examine the program and see it cast in the machine language of the object simulated, it's just an imitation. I think there's a very fundamental point uh, that I think we can say immediately. In other words, we are interested in generative theories of behavior. We are interested in discovering how this, whatever it is, assembly of neurons, assembly of molecules, computes the output of the system, generates the behavior. All those things are equivalent. Well, having done that deviation, let us ask ourselves, what is it that biologists need. So, of course, many people say, well, we just think if we start with this reductionist approach, working up everything from genes through protein folding, through protein function, through cells, you know, we're going to be exhausted before we come to the real thing like the behavior of human beings. And on the other hand, if we deal with the behavior of human beings that is so remote from explanation in fundamental biological terms that we're going to have to wait a long time before we can do seriously. And there what I have posed 
is the difference between bottom-up and top-down. So what I'm suggesting is a compromise. I am a middle-out person. Start in the middle and work upwards and also work downwards. All right. So what is what I offer? Now, this is not a, this is not a frivolous question. Because what we're asking is a rather deep question about the level of abstraction we need in order to provide theoretical explanations. And we don't need, in order to provide an explanation of why some people like ice cream and some people don't, we don't need to provide an explanation at the level of quantum mechanics. I mean, we probably couldn't anyway. So we must choose the appropriate level. And the appropriate level, I believe, for biology is the cell. The cell because in many organisms it is the organism, as indeed in yeast, in singles, many single-celled organisms, and in others it comprises the organism. So I started a project which I call Cell Map because I think the concept of a map that is a thing that you can steer by, you can go by is I think very important. So how would I, how would I generate the information in Cell Map and how do you use it? How can I communicate the complexity and how can you actually use it to compute? And let me add again, this is a Le Corbusier thing. I mean, CellMap doesn't exist as a fundamental project. It exists like Le Corbusier's plans for this imaginary city just outside Marseille, for example. So it's an architecture. It's an architectural plan. Hopefully, we will be able to get it implemented and I do this. And in this, I have been tremendously struck by what has been achieved in things called geographical information systems. And I think they are well worthwhile a study by everybody who's thinking on how to organize biological data is to look at GIS and you, you realize that what we need is BIS, a biological information system. Now, what I'd like you to just uh, I'm going to just deviate for a moment and speak a little about this. So why do we have geographical information systems? Well, it turns out people need maps. They need maps to find out where they're going. They need maps, for example, when they want to rezone an area. And so, if people can provide software to draw maps, there's an economic availability. Furthermore, what is interesting is geographers know that there are different kinds of information which they can superpose. For example, they can take an aerial photograph of the town, which is a real, it's called a raster, 
uh, picture, and you can actually see the houses there. Or they can do a block diagram of the way the streets are, which is what you normally see. Or they can make a diagram of, they can make a picture of the topography of the outside. And in particular, they can project this into the third dimension through a contour map. So it turns out that what's quite important is that when a truck overturns on a road here and spills some incredibly toxic chemical, you want to know instantly where is that chemical going to go. Right? So you want to know what is the drainage of that place, where is it going to go, what are the organisms that live there, the environment, how is that threatened. Now, and I think this is quite important. So you could say, well, look, we'll draw all the streams and rivers here, and we'll draw arrows on them to say the stream is flowing this way, the stream is flowing that way. But when you think about it, if you had a contour map, you wouldn't have to have arrows on the streams. Okay? All you have to have is the principle, water flows downhill. Right? And therefore a computer, just looking at a contour map, and all the streams can immediately calculate, compute, which way the water is going. You do not have to specify that independently. And it's a very good example because, of course, if you were to say a GIS, you want all these elaborate things of where the water's going because it doesn't matter if the water's flowing back onto the truck that has uh, spilt the chemical, but it's very important if that water's carrying that chemical down, downstream. So a contour map with the superposition of the little streams on it immediately is computable in terms of where the drainage will take place simply on the basis of one rule, water flows downhill, which is true. I mean, it is a fact. And therefore, you don't have to specify for each case a kind of extra argument for this. So, we have to think quite hard now, what's the equivalent for us of water flows downhill? So we don't have to write everything in great detail, you know, and say, well, this leads to this. In other words, should be implicit in the physical properties that we assimilate into the language of our database, that that can be computed quite easily. So the GIS contains many ideas that I think people will profit from when they come to design BIS. Right? So, let me now just go and say, what are the problems that we have to do? And let me just say that I think these problems are very deep and very profound because we are struggling to explain our subject to 
are professionals. I mean, people who know all about molecular biology, all that stuff. We are struggling to get a communication simply because the specialization of biology has now become extreme. You know, there are people who are, who are specialists on the fifth nucleotide of tRNA and can't communicate with people who are specialists on the fourth nucleotide of tRNA. It's an exaggeration, but not far off the mark. The, yet we have to think that we have to now begin to communicate this to professionals in other subjects. And at the end of the day, we have to communicate it to the people who are going to enter the subject. In other words, we have not only a problem of defining the theory of, of biology, but in fact we have a very deep educational problem. We want people to understand this. Now, of course, physics decided, quite rightly, it would have a rather solipsistic uh, language, namely the language of mathematics, in order to, to communicate itself to you. So if you understood partial differential equations, you, could, uh, you were able to, to communicate with physicists. So I want to have the equivalent, which I have called impartial differential equations, I don't think they exist, in which I want to communicate this kind of complexity, the kind of structure of biology to other people. And at the end of the day, we, this is an educational problem, it is something we will have to do, we will have to overcome to teach the subject. Well, what's the best way of doing this? Well, we can all write books about it, or we can transmit pages and pages of text. But all this kind of writing about it is endless. Uh, I don't know. For example, uh, JBC, I think, is close to 40,000 pages a year now. It certainly is that. That's a journal that comes out every week, 40,000 of very closely printed pages, so that maybe you have to read something like 40 million words a year if in all scholarly conscience you wanted to follow the subject. It's impossible to, to do. And JBC is not the only journal. There are lots of others. So how are we going to do this? So let's go back to the thing we want to simulate. I told uh, uh, you perhaps that we probably have 40,000 gene loci. And of course what we now know is that there are several instantiations of each gene locus. That is, there is a way of expressing a gene locus so that it has a specific function and using the information, again, so that we can attach 
either a different address to that function, so it goes to a different part of the cell, or we can, uh, we can modify uh, the number of cells that's addressed into. So we call those instantiations, just after a common word used in computer science. And we will say that if there are, let us be extreme and say, five instantiations of each gene, we have 200,000 of these. So perhaps in any particular cell in our body, we have 25,000 things expressed. 25,000 genes are expressed. And of course, what we'd like to do is to show everybody what all these 25,000 things are doing, which is impossible for someone to take that input. So we ask, how is this complex? Is this complexity past in the organism? And it turns out it's pretty well past because no protein ever acts alone. Proteins are put into assemblies, just like the insurance office. There isn't one person who just is the insurance agent, and he does everything. What happens is they assemble an entity which consists of several people to offer insurance to people, or the banks work like. Well, so it is the same in biological systems. What works are little gadgets or machines or assemblies of different gene products are put together which compute an outcome. And in fact, if you look at it, for example, there is a function in the cell which involves how you splice out the introns. We know there are 65 different proteins form an assembly that does it. We know that if you want to make proteins in a cell, you have to have form, perform, you have to form an initiation complex. That initiation complex involves several sub-assemblies, but basically 26 gene products participate in that. Okay? So, let's make the assumption that if we defined all of those things, we would have reduced the complexity by an order of magnitude. Right? So instead of having to think about 25,000 individual proteins, we only have to think about 2,500. It's a considerable reduction of the complexity. Now, it turns out that the cell isn't just a bag of fluid, but the cell is topographically distinguished. So certain things go on in the membrane, certain things go on in the nucleus, there are mitochondria, there are other internal membranous systems. So there is a location for these events. The location is important. So that if we take the geography of the cell into account, Let's just say we have another reduction in complexity of another order of magnitude. 
so that in any one compartment, in any one cell, we're only dealing with now a few hundred. So how... So can we use that reduction in complexity to try to give people a realistic understanding of what is going on? And I think it is this reduction in complexity which is the key. And in fact, in CellMap, uh, that reduction plays a very important role because CellMap is based on the transmission of information by pictures and not by words. And the reason for this is that if we could teach people an iconic language about biological objects, which we can, that is to have cartoons of molecules, and if they learned that information... We could, we could have a representation on a screen that they would automatically be able to grasp. And so the idea in CellMap is don't send immense layers of text, show pictures. Now, now these pictures, and of course now if you go and look at the uh, journals, everybody has a little cartoon there. You know, they have this protein glued on to this, and they have different colors. But it's not a language, because everybody just says, you know, it looks good to have this purple and this green and this yellow. So what would be the language of, of picture? The picture language for biology would be, I submit the following. First of all, everything should carry information according to scale. In other words... If the subunit is big, it should have a big icon. Okay? If it's a small one, it's one-tenth of the size of the big one, it should be drawn small. And if you look at the pictures being used in journals, that's not true. It's drawn according to the significance the author places on his, his thing. So his protein is really big. And, and brilliantly colored, and everybody else's protein is sort of diminished. Okay, so we have a strict thing. Now, the beauty about that is that's automatically, can be automatically generated. So you can give a computer a genome, and it can calculate the length of the proteins, and it can draw a set of icons according to the length. And it's quite illuminating to actually see that because your picture, you will find, is completely wrong. It's completely wrong about the relative sizes of things. So that's the first thing we would do in the designed language of CellMap. Now, CellMap also doesn't like this idea of this color-coded intensity, okay? because it's actually not natural. You know, so, so if a thing is, there's a lot of something, they color it red, okay? and they go through the spectrum like this, because the eye 
doesn't recognize. I recognize as intensity, absolute intensity. It hasn't got that scale built in. So we will use intensity to represent the amount of protein. So bright icons says, there's a lot of us guys here, and dimmer icons will say, there aren't any, there's a very little of us. And in my system, again, this is just a design, we will use color to convey information, knowledge. So, so for example, we will say, when we start with an icon, it's a rather pale lemon yellow. It's very neutral. We know nothing about it. If we learn a little bit about it from the sequence, we'll lift it up to green. If, in fact, we actually do an analysis of this and get the X-ray, the atomic structure, we'll make it violet. And if, of course, it resembles something for which there is an atomic structure, we'll make it blue. So according to this view, you look at the screen, you can tell at once what is the state of information by looking at these icons. And of course, we would allow people to take this and say, wow, I'd like to see what is this violet stuff all about. And then he could go downwards to the atomic structure. Okay. Now, so, that's not all we want. So we would have to go through, generate all of this, and of course, you can now see that when the system starts up, it's mostly pale lemon yellow, in other words, and as knowledge accumulates, so it moves up the spectrum, it moves up in a dynamic way. Right, now how can we put into this all the other information we would like to put in. This is very simple. Right? So it's cell-based. So somewhere in the system, we will have to define, and we can define, what we mean by uh, a given cell type. Okay? Now, some of these cell types are very clear. I mean, you go into the blood cells, there are lymphocytes, there are T lymphocytes, there are B lymphocytes. You look at the white cells, they're neutrophils, eosinophils, basophils. These are all distinguished from each other by a specified gene expression, that is, by a specified part of the program, of the total program that happens to be expressed in those cells. And if you go through a textbook of histology and count up the number of these states, you might find 200. If you go to the brain, start to count up how many states are there. Well, in the retina alone, there may be as many as 40 such different states with each cell having a specialized switching on of the genes, okay? which, of course, explains its function. So part of the task, in my opinion, is forget about the genome. Now, 
We got it. It can all be somewhere in the background. And let's go and find out how the genome maps in this sense onto the number of cell types. And how many can we define, which according to this would be defined as orthogonal or uh, exclusive degrees of gene expression. Because those have to be established by some kind of switch. In other words, we will have implicit in this, this, if you like, a reflection of the control state of that cell. And we all agree that defining that control state is the most important thing we can do next. So what are the other features of cell map? Cell map is very much, as I said, influenced by GIS, and so it loves layers, just as you can take a topographical map and you can superpose on it, or rather you can take an aerial photograph and superpose on it the contour map so that people can look through various layers of information. That's what the map does. So it defines the following. It says every cell has a predecessor and potentially a successor, except cells at the end of the line don't have successors. And, of course, cells at the beginning of the line don't have predecessors. So it should be possible for the user in the system to say, oh, I've got a nice B cell here. What was its predecessor? And can I actually see... What genes got turned on when I went from a pre-B cell to a post-B cell, right? So we have time built into this. And at the end of the day, if we have enough information put into this, the user should be able to observe. By definition, because this is by recursion, he would be able to observe the whole of the development of an organism. Now, the other layer you'd love to put into this is the evolutionary layer. You'd like to take a cell and say, let's go backwards in time, and let's see, how does Drosophila, how does a cell in Drosophila, your kind of standard cell issue, you know, the CI, not the GI, the CI, how does it do this? What pieces are missing? What has evolution added? And you should be able to do this for any subsystem. Now, furthermore, you should be able to look above the system, again, in yet another layer. So that when I, I mean, when you study a cell and you make it switch and you analyze the whole of gene expression, it isn't just something you do by cluster analysis. You have a look to see what are the genes, because those genes tell you things. So you simply see, for example, I mean, I was totally amazed. I didn't know this. I took, uh, we did a cell, which you'd call a monocyte. We turned it into a macrophage, and we said, what gene stopped being made? what new genes are being turned on. 
And, of course, you find genes that turn on new receptors. For example, this cell had a catecholamine receptor turned on. I didn't know this was the case, that macrophages can respond to catecholamines. In other words, I knew then from that that I had a receptor for a signal that emanated from somewhere else. And I, was, I was now building lines of communication from outside the cell. And, of course, if I looked at the other genes which made signals, okay, I could now begin to say, well, this is, these are the receiving antennae for the interaction in the global thing, and these are the broadcast antennae that the cell can make to send to other signals. So I have an entry into the whole of physiology through the same system without altering it. Furthermore, I could begin to build into exactly the same system any information, say, particularly in the brain, that this cell is joined to this one and can send it information. Because apart from building the network in the brain, in the cell, we need to build the network of cells that constitute the organism. So if I can uh, make this as a, not as a program, it's a prospectus really, I think we need a cell map, something like this, in order that we may investigate this complexity. So, so far I've just dealt with, you know, how we're going to organize this, how we're going to get it so we can assimilate it. So, what are we going to talk about interactions? Now, everybody you will see will tell you, oh, we've got to do protein-protein interactions. That's the next stage. You know, we know all the proteins. Now we must find out how they interact. And we must work out high-throughput methods of mapping this interaction. And so there are all kinds of technologies which have been proposed to make this map. Right? Now, it's very interesting to see what, the, what people think this map of protein-protein interactions looks like. Uh, when they do the recording, I think this kind of fundamental structure is chicken wire. That is, there's a network with lots of things meeting other things. The results look a little bit like the Tokyo underground system, totally incomprehensible in this respect. Right, so I think we stand back from this and in order to try to understand how signals are passed, we first ask questions. How do biological systems generate signals and how do they measure them? Okay. And I think that's very important actual groundwork that we must establish. Now we have pretty good precedence for this and I'd like you to just remind you how actually the nervous system transmits signals. 
So the nervous system transmits signals as follows. There passes down the, the, uh, the axon, an impulse, which is in fact a potential change that is measured on the thing, and in fact, you do not change the amplitude of the of, you don't change the amplitude of the potential change. You can only change the frequency. So all the potential changes have the same amplitude because they all involve the opening and closing of various channels, which happen to be sodium channels in this case. And this travels down, and the more intense the, the stimulus the greater the frequency. That frequency, when it reaches the terminal, is translated into a depolarization of the membrane. That is, it is integrated right, and results in potassium channels being opened. Those potassium channels then allow little packets of a transmitter called acetylcholine, in the case I'm studying, to be released into a cleft. And the cleft is where they move across from the, the synapse ending into the muscle which is going to receive them. So the computation which is performed there is integrate the intensity and make the release of receptor of transmitter proportional to this value. Okay, now, this stuff gets into the synaptic channels and binds to another channel on the other side called the acetylcholine receptor, and of course, as a result of that binding, there is a depolarization of that membrane. And, of course, if you just left it like that, uh, everybody would go into spasm, okay, because it would be sustained. Indeed, that doesn't happen because sitting in the cleft is an enzyme which destroys acetylcholine. So what would be a wave which would be sustained is chopped into what is almost a delta function, a pulse, and you've therefore converted a frequency in the neuron into an absolute, the integration of the delta function into the total number of molecules represented there. Okay? Now, we could quite easily abstract that that, all that stuff into the following. We would set a gadget, set a gadget, which we'll call the synapse, in which we will take everything that's there, like the release of vesicles, like the acetylcholinesterase, like the channels that open on the acetylcholine, and just say, that's a gadget. It's got several components. Okay, and when we put it in, when, and then we will take the other thing, which is the signal. Right? So when the signal 
actually impinges on that gadget, we can say that the function, the transform that it performs is it changes a frequency into so many molecules of, uh, of a deep, well, of depolarization, which ultimately leads into calcium leaking into the muscle and creating a stimulus. Okay? So the picture, my picture of the network is not chicken wire. My picture is, is functions, right? gadgets, which I've called them that, which in fact have signals that reach them and which compute a function from the signal. In other words, if you were to compare me uh, to what other people think about this, my diagrams are those of an electronic, electrical engineer. You know, so I have all these functions. I can make a wiring diagram. I can have an impedance circuit here. And I can synthesize a circuit rather than the other view, which is sort of what a chemical engineer might think in terms of flows and reactions, much as we discussed with E. coli last night. And I think that, in fact, it is electrical engineering. It is wiring diagrams that do this. And once you decompose the system, not into a mad set of interactions, but into a graph which has nodes, which are elements that perform transformations, and arcs, which are the signals, then we can build a logical diagram in order to display this. So the hypothesis is that how far can we go now to build these wiring diagrams? And also, how far, if we can't go very far, what should we do to find out what they are? So it turns out that quite a lot has been done already. There's quite a lot known about subsystems like this. People have made the measurements. They, say they happen to be published in journals which are not very fashionable to read. They are journals I call VLI journals, very low-impact journals. And in fact, nobody reads them because they think like the Biochemical Journal of Great Britain, they have many pharmacological journals, and they've got gold there. So I hope I'll create a stampede of people. And I have to say, I'm very proud of the fact there's not a single significant paper in this field published in Cell, for example. And there are a lot of significant ones published in BBRC. Okay, now, why is this so? Uh, because people there are rather classical biochemists, and they've sort of measured, they've actually measured the properties of things. Now, actually, I've been working on a number of these substances, and I'd like to tell you about one. All the information exists in the literature. Okay, and it's how a little gadget responds to cyclic AMP, which is a very big signal. So in your heart muscle, 
you have adrenaline landing on the heart that stimulates your beta adrenergic receptors. And of course, you know, people give you beta blockers so they don't want too much of that stuff going on. And that generates finally through a pathway, it generates cyclic AMP. All right. So there is a wave of cyclic AMP and these enzymes that make cyclic AMP are in the membrane of the cell. I've just drawn them like that. So depending on how the signal, which happens to be a G protein, gets to this, this will emanate a signal of cyclic AMP. Okay. Now, Sitting in an appropriate position in the cell, there is what is called an anchor protein. So we'll just draw it like this, an A-cap. This A-cap has bound to it what is called the R subunit. And this is the catalytic subunit of what is called a cyclic AMP kinase. Okay, the way cyclic AMP works is to enter this compound, dissociate the catalytic unit. The catalytic unit can go off and phosphorylate various things. Okay. Now, sitting on this gadget is in fact a cyclic AMP phosphodiesterase. That destroys cyclic AMP. Okay. Right? And therefore, when this comes, and when you phosphorylate this, you activate it seven times. Okay? So when this catalytic subunit hits that, which is close by, and puts a phosphate on this, this enzyme is activated and will destroy cyclic AMP. Yeah. And that's just what we had with acetylcholinesterase. So this wave of cyclic AMP that we could think advanced is immediately chopped, and all we will have recorded was what was the wave front, which essentially is the, our old friend, the delta function. All right, so... So proportional to this is the dissociation, so this thing doesn't go into sustained tetanus, if you like. And then the next thing we discover is that this is linked to something called a ryanodyne receptor, which happens to sit in a membrane over here, and when this is phosphorylated by this, then this channel opens and calcium comes out. Calcium is what you need to get the heart muscle to contract. Okay? Now, furthermore, there is bound to this, the details are not known completely, another enzyme called a phosphatase, 
And what this enzyme does is takes off this phosphate, presumably takes off that phosphate, and the system is restored to the ground state again. So here we have a little gadget. And what we can say then, so now, from today onwards, you don't have to think of this as being one, two, three, four, five, six genes. You think of it as one function. And you write on this that this, in fact, can transform a concentration of cyclic AMP, okay, convert it into a pulse, and convert it, transform it into a pulse of calcium. Okay. So, if I represent it in this form, I've already condensed the complexity into one object, if you like, and I can already compute because, you know, my people have, people have measured that when I put a phosphate on here, that actually uh, I activate the enzyme. And I can actually prove my model because I can take away the amino acid that the phosphate goes on and I can make an animal or a cell in which this step does not occur. And I can ask myself, is it sustained then? If I don't destroy the cyclic AMP, you know, does it just do this and stay in tetanus all the time? And in fact, I can modify this so that even if it's not phosphorylated, it's activated by just putting another amino acid in there and test that this gadget computes the right function. Now, if we were to continue with this, we would have to map this out for all of the cell systems. And I submit it is only when we can define that, that in fact uh, we will have an object representation and not a name representation with which we can form calculations. I'm a drug company comes to me and says, I've got something that will inhibit this receptor. I could actually calculate what you would do to the calcium flux at that point by just running it through this wiring diagram, right? I could build the electrical analogs of it. I could do all kinds of things. I could do a digital computation, right? And what I'd like you to see is the following, is how the organisms actually, by building gadgets like this, don't have to worry about noise, okay? Because you might think if there was one of these kind of networks that people project into the system, that you'd have to keep the concentrations of everything pretty well modified, pretty well accurate. But in fact, we have experiment and after experiment, that when we have an organism that's mutant 
for one of these components that the mutation is fully recessive. Okay, so I can reduce the amount of protein of any of these by a factor of two, and I can see no effect on the organism. Now, if it was a measurement that would look for a factor of two difference, it would be sensitive to that. The thing would not work. So this kind of condensation of things is in fact the trick biological systems use in, a, in an environment where they can't count everything accurately. It's in fact, if you like, a way of quantizing everything because, of course, everything is adjacent, so everything becomes concentration independent. Right, so I've given you one example which I think will be the shape of things to come. It will be repeated over and over again. This is the condensation of complexity. So here we are. One, two, three, four, five, six genes or instantiations of genes contribute to one element. So the complexity has been divided by six because once we know all of this at the molecular level, at the cellular level, we can just make a box and say this is the function transformed. Okay, so uh, I hope I have given you examples of the way I see one should go to build what I call the city of the cell. And I think that this, personally think, this is the only way to do it. And I'm not interested in the yellow pages. I think this is the way to do it so that we understand what is going on inside the cell. And it's again an, illum an illustration of what I think you should the take-home lesson is that biological organisms are not sophisticated. They're not elegant. The only mathematics they know is basically arithmetic. They don't understand partial differential equations. And I think, you know, this is the case that one and one equals two. And I think this is the path that we have to follow. I thank you all for uh, braving the weather and coming to these lectures. And I hope that if we were to talk later, the cell map will not remain just a grand architectural drawing, but in fact will become a reality. Thank you very much. A simple question. Um, going to construct the um, AIS, as you want to say, the unit that we're going to start to use with is the cell, which you say I work with. And then from the cell, the language that I'm going to describe the cell is in terms of 
uh, pictures, graphs, okay? Yeah. Of which one of them is up there. There's a no. Park. Okay. Yes. Now, this, question, I, I thought I'd, I should call it nodomics, actually, <laughs> to keep in line. How many pictures, for a given cell, how many pictures am I going to have to have? Uh, 10,000? 2 million? How, what, what kind, how many uh, pictures am I going to have to go with well, I think what happens is the following. Uh, see, if I take this gene, this one here, and study it carefully, I discover that this very gene, this one, this very gene, has six different instantiations, okay, of which one of them carries with it, adds a little, a little protein to the gene that says, join ACAP. In other words, it gives it an address in the cell. For example, there's another version of the same gene that's suspended from the membrane. So, the same catalytic function, which is what this thing does, all right, and its properties, is then has six different places to go to. In each different place, it is synthesized into another one of these elements. We don't know how many of these there are. This is one of the tasks to do, how many of these instantiations. And to me, the exciting thing is could we compute them from the sequence? Because these little pieces... They're roughly the order of 20 amino acids. You can actually make these peptides. You can inject them into the cell, and they will inhibit the binding of this. In principle, there is a way of going to the genome to function through this address language here. Now, I can't tell you how many there are. There could be a lot. And... The job now is to list all of these. And I think it's listable. I think we can do it. And so that, I think, is the, the big task that lies ahead. And I think what is important is to try to understand what a gadget like this actually does. Because when the biochemists found it, it didn't make sense. Why would you destroy the signal? by activating something that destroys it. So to a biochemist who only saw these parts, didn't make sense. But when you understand that there is a function, which is to chop a wave into a delta function, as indeed otherwise the thing would go into spasm, then it makes sense, right? And, it, and the exact number you could fiddle with, I mean, you could do experiments to say, is sevenfold activation the right number? Okay, and presumably evolution, by tinkering with amino acids, could say, well, it might be better to do 11-fold interaction. So I'm trying to indicate that there is a molecular basis for the functioning of this, which it's our task to define. And only when we define that will we have the units to compute cell function. Okay, so I think it's just at the beginning.
it sounds like indeed a Gedanken experiment to a person far removed from the field. There was an article written by Barry Commoner about two months ago in Atlantic Magazine. Yeah. You're familiar with it. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't read it, but I'm familiar with it. <laughs> is that a taken to be a, a negative comment? Yeah, it is. I know Barry Commoner. He's been writing articles like this for probably close to a hundred years. Yes. <laughs> I pay. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, no. Uh, now, I, I've heard of the article. I haven't read it. It remotely, yeah. it, it seems to remotely bear on what you're talking about here in that there are far more proteins than there are genes that can sure, code sure, for them. Sure, sure, And He's therefore, right. these He's proteins right. are coding for more than one, and therefore, if you mess up one gene, which has a desirable manifestation, you don't necessarily know what other proteins are going to be. No, his, he was a big redundancy man. Yes. You know, in other words, nature, nature is sort of like IBM and can't assure you of a reliable computer, so it forces you to buy three to put <laughs> in a space vehicle. So he's got that kind of view, yes. Yeah, I tell you, what I think is this, is, you see, what I think we have to ask ourselves, and that's what I try to do tonight, I ask myself, what is the meaningful way in which a signal can be transmitted in a cell? I came to the conclusion there are only two ways. Either you change a steady state level, so you up it, and you have a system that can measure the concentration and respond, which would be like a Michaelian enzyme system, or you deliver a pulse. Okay, and the pulse comes and the pulse dies. The system responds in proportional to the pulse. Right? So what I'm trying to say here is that until I sat down and did this, then the idea was with, we just said, well, the cyclic AMP concentration rises and the system responds. I've tried to show you that it can't, you can't just say that. It's too, it's too vague. And here is a detailed specification of how the system responds, what it's actually measuring. And we will have to go and do that for everything and if you that do it for everything, is that what Daniel Dennett would call a conscious hmm? machine? Daniel Dennett referred yeah. to a conscious machine. If you have enough complexity, enough inputs, enough outputs, enough memory, it becomes indistinguishable from conscious. Well, I, would, conscious? Uh, I wouldn't go, not go that far uh, to say that this is conscious, that it knows what it's doing. You know, in that sense. Uh, but I, I think you should look at this. If you're an electronic engineer and you're sort of asked by your boss to make a wiring diagram which you could rectify certain current, people have an art of synthesizing circuits. Right? These are circuits that we will learn the art of. Okay? That isn't a flux system in which we will be worried by rates of flow. So this is, if you like, a rectifier 
and then we have another gadget, and then we can put these together. Because these gadgets then, and the remarkable thing is, they allow us to compute outputs. Once we know the properties, once we know the features of this, we can tell uh, the people who want to know how they predict things, we can tell them, yeah, if you inhibit this 50%, this is the way this will respond. So I think that is, that is the aim. Now, if I wrote a simulation of that pathway, you see, I would be writing it in machine language. I would include all of those sub-functions, and therefore I would have a true simulation. It would be as though I did deliver a pulse of cyclic AMP to the real object. Sydney, it seems to me that your CIS uh, analogy is harkens back to the systems biologist and simply by identifying and cataloging the, all the number of parts and how they're connected brings you the understanding, uh, a concept against which you railed in your first talk. So can you distinguish between how your architecture distinguishes from the systems biologist uh, approach to... Uh, well, I think I am... Well, I think I can distinguish it. I think mine is better, firstly. <laughs> it would have to be. Secondly, I can compute. I mean, I think there's too much hand-waving in the systems approach. The idea that everything interacts with everything and we've got to do this. That's why I think the systems approach have the mentality of chemical engineers. They've got all these flows and fluxes and they will be looking at gradients and so on. And I'm saying, I've just got gadgets, hardwired gadgets. You stick in something here, and they respond in the following way, and that is the way they work. And so I think if you were to distinguish the two levels of taste, I am interested in wiring diagrams with functional entities. The way an electrical engineer can tell you that this wiring diagram will convert, you know, some uh, alternating current of this frequency into direct current, you know, with this voltage. And that's what I think the cell does. Okay? And I think that's our job find this, get the wiring diagram, and then the issue is, can we compute from the assembly of wiring diagrams how the cell functions? You know, how many of these are parallel, independent? I think we'll find there's a lot of independence, and that crosstalk is essentially dispensed with as noise in the system. So that's the real thing of characterizing this. So in a sense, if you say, you know, if it's good to join the system's biology, you know, if membership of this carries nice things like free wine and so on, I'm a system's biologist. <laughs> that we um, should quantitatively measure the inputs and outputs into some of these... Uh 
mechanisms. And I, my question is really, what precision do we need in these estimates? Very good question. You see, we can tell from known experiments that the precision doesn't need, it's insensitive. So I'm going to give you another object, all right? So suppose, all right, suppose we have the following thing. We have one protein, and this protein activates another protein. So this is X, this is Y, and Y's function is to generate, to convert A into B. And A is inactive, and B is active. Okay, there are many cases like this. So, a systems approach will say, you do this because X recognizes Y, it's a bimolecular reaction, the rate will become proportional, okay, to the concentration of these things. And so, if you varied the concentration, and I measured the output of B, and I halved X, right, halved the concentration of X, then, if I made the measurement, then B would be produced like this, when X is at a certain concentration, and when it's at a half, it would be produced like this. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you how biology deals with that problem. So let us say, no, it's not done like this. What happens is that there is another protein which binds X and Y, and X and Y have very low probability of meeting in solution. They're quite dilute. Right? So I first assemble the complex. Okay? Then you will see that what happens is that when I make X a half, I only change the induction period. Okay? Because the thing will be proportional to the amount of this ternary complex. So when I reduce it by half, what I will get is normally I would have a little time while I assemble this, it would be like this. But if I reduce that by half, take me a little longer to assemble this, but the rate of output will remain the same. Because basically, I've set up a molecule counter. Okay? So that is the difference between assembling a gadget to do the thing and just having everything by, if you like, in systems, by network interactions and so on. Right? So what I say is this, that the collisions of X and Y in free solution, noise. Okay? So it's just the thing buzzing around, not doing anything seriously. When you want it to deliver a signal, you assemble it into a complex. And what you've built with this is a molecule counter. You just said, I want so many molecules to assemble. And in fact, lots and lots, I can give you lots of examples which work like this. So we have escaped from, you know, quite a lot of physical chemistry by this gadget. Okay, so that's the way I would look at things.